Welcome to Home and Identity, a podcast examining the meaning of these words in the lives of immigrants and expats. I am your host and producer of this podcast, Sarah Tori. My guest Yulia, a professional musician who moved from Ukraine over 20 years ago, shared her stories of living in the Soviet Union up until its collapse in 1991 and what life was like afterwards in Ukraine. She then talked about her life here in the United States and some of her experiences and culture shocks. She also expressed how she's feeling and what she is going through living outside of Ukraine during these difficult times while still having family back there. I truly hope for better days in near future, and let's have a listen. Hi, Yulia. Thank you so much for joining me today to talk about some of your experiences. Can you tell everybody a little bit about yourself? Uh, hi, Sarah. Thanks for having me. Um, I am originally from Ukraine. I live in Southern California now, and I've been in America for the last almost 20 years. And um, I'm a musician, I'm a classical pianist, and uh, I know that you wanted my age range. So age range, late 30s, early 40s, so that people understand where I am. <laughs> I think when we met, we were both kind of fresh to this new country and uh, had a lot of uh, things in common and also a lot of uh, learnings to do, which we, we did some of it together, which was fun. I didn't realize it, actually, because you really? already lived here for a couple of years and I felt yeah. like you were so integrated. I was like, oh, wow, Sarah knows stuff. And now I'm like, just fresh from the boat. Oh, <laughs> uh, do I have stories to tell you? <laughs> okay. I don't feel like I uh, got used to... Well, there's still a lot of sh culture shocks that I'm experiencing on a daily basis. Um, and I don't think I will get rid of these uh, experiences till the end of my life. I feel like I'm constantly <laughs> coming across things that just kind of make me go, huh, okay, cool. And just you learn and move on, right? I used to say so many funny things that my friends at the time used to look at me like, what do you mean? And an example of it was I had a friend who uh, was waiting for his parent to arrive to give him a ride home. Mm -hmm. And uh, they weren't there for whatever reason. They were late. And uh, my dad was coming to pick me up. And so I was trying to tell him that we can give you a ride. Uh -huh. And I couldn't figure out how to put the words together to tell him, hey, we can just give you a ride home. Uh -huh. And I remember saying something like, we can take you off. And <laughs> like, like, what? Well, I had the same, not the same experience, but like, um, I just came to school. It was like a month at school and a student was telling me like, oh, but you, you know, you can just take a nap. Like, take a what? What is that? Because <laughs> like for, I thought maybe it's like a fancy word for a napkin or something. I'm like, take a nap. He's like, well, you know, a short sleep. I'm like, huh. So yeah. <laughs> so there's little, little things that always, uh. We chuckle about it, but it's kind of uh, hard to adjust at the beginning. So now let's go back to Ukraine uh, and to your childhood, because you have lived in a um, very interesting time and very um, yes. interesting places. Trying times, you know, like there is this expression, <laughs> there's this expression that you like the worst thing that you or the best thing, it depends on how you think it is living through the time of change. And yeah. yes. And so for, for where I was from, it was a major change. 
Yeah, of course. Uh, yeah. Yeah. So take me back to before the major change, before uh, <laughs> okay. 1991. <laughs> yeah. So before 1991, it was Soviet Union. So we were part of um, a big, um, I, I, well, a union it is, but like it, it's it's uh, not like United States. So sometimes people think like, oh, but you still have like separated, uh, you're still separated. No, Soviet Union was very connected. Everything was centralized through Moscow. So everything went through Moscow and everything went to Moscow and then it was distributed uh, around other whatever we were, republics. Yeah, so um, it, and it was end of the era of Soviet Union, so Gorbachev was uh, already um, in power. Well, well, not immediately, but almost immediately after I was born. Right. And so um, the perestroika started, so people started to feel like new wave was coming, but also it was this like era of stagnation when uh, Soviet Union couldn't produce as much as people were needing, and mm-hmm. so it was. Um, yeah, I mean, when I see stores from North Korea, it doesn't look uh, like anything different from my that childhood. different. Yeah, but yeah. that wasn't gotcha. the picture of like stores from my childhood, basically. So there was nothing so question... there, black market, you know, all of that. <laughs> yeah, of course, of course, black market, the best place to be, right? Um, <laughs> exactly. <laughs> so question on that. So you mentioned that even though it was called a union, it wasn't really... Um, in a way that we think of the United States where you have your state governments yeah. and they kind of function under a bigger federal government, but you have a lot of uh, um, power within the states. So when you mentioned republics, did they have sort of local governments as well or um, everything was basically we done in Moscow? did, but I mean, we were always done stable republics. So we had mm-hmm. more control, uh, like Moscow was controlling us more than some sure. other countries. But yes, obviously, we did have our own government inside, but everything was controlled still by Moscow. So always like checkpoints that you had to pass. Ah, I see. So a very sort of communist country, of course, and um, things had to be done a certain way. And uh, you mentioned something in our previous conversation, which was uh, an, an interesting word, I think. You you used the word boring. And you said it was pretty boring, but also you knew what to expect. So can you tell me a little bit about that? So um, something that Soviet Union brought uh, was this feeling of, um, because it was stagnation, Mm -hmm. so it was feeling of safety because you know exactly how much the bread is going to cost, how much you're going to earn, how much you're going to pay for this. So they were trying to keep... uh, this uh, fake prices mm-hmm. for by the you know but then we didn't have anything else mm-hmm. and but but yes you knew exactly what was going to happen because that was the only way how it happens right were there certain things that were not allowed to have within the country i'm assuming so because the black market was so successful and um, when i was so you see when i was growing up it was already like falling apart I see. So even like like my husband and I would have like a couple of years of difference. He had stricter rules even at school than I did. Oh, okay. So I was like at the very end. Everybody was lax. I mean, we were we've been watching soap opera in the class in the classroom. Wow. Okay. So, you know, because like That's my the teacher was definition like, of freedom right there. <laughs> yeah, I know because my teacher was like, "Well, we have this finally. This, we've been shown um, Brazilian uh, first, like Brazilian and Mexican soap operas." Okay. And um, so that one was, oh, 
I, I a slave is our. I don't I don't even know how to translate it. Mm. Anyway, it it was about slavery. Okay. And it was shown only twice a day. And the first time was like when I was at school. So, you know, that's, <laughs> so, what, that's what we did instead of a class. <laughs> that is hilarious. But it's so also- I learned about slavery at about six. <laughs> that, was, that was my take on slavery. You know? That's not something you hear every day. <laughs> yeah. So, you know, like, so when I hear people here talking like, oh, they're too young. I'm like, my friends, I, I can <laughs> tell you, six is not too young. <laughs> Well, and it's funny because that you mentioned that, and I remember there was a period when I was a kid in Iran that some of the European movies became a little bit more uh, allowed, if you would, and in yeah. the regular theaters, like movie theaters. So I remember watching, um, and I think I believe it was called Dante. It was about um, this reverend, revolutionary French individual who uh, basically led. A part of the revolution in in France at the time it was the French mm-hmm. Revolution. The story was around, um, and then he get he got executed at the end of the movie mm-hmm. alongside his friends uh, by way of guillotine. And mm-hmm. I watched that movie. I don't know when I was six or seven. Same thing. <laughs> <laughs> now that I'm thinking about it, I have a six year old. I'm like, oh my god, what? How? Why did we watch that stuff? So yeah, so there was like a burning scene, like so it, it was a very rough. It was very rough, and uh, I, I now in Soviet Union the, we had all of like everything about slavery were like the books that are banned here or mm-hmm. were banned here. They were all available because obviously that's part of propaganda. So right. that's how bad it is, America. Yeah, yeah. So in a way. I learned about it since very young age mm-hmm. or like let's say French Revolution yeah that's a good kind of movie you can watch a movie and yeah, yeah there is a guillotine in the end uh-huh. okay oh well <laughs> <laughs> okay oh well part of the reality part of the history why not <laughs> you know? yeah it, but scarred for life then, I mean we learned about it yeah but then you don't you I miss a huge um cultural uh, contact that I'm learning now yeah. about 80s so that I can understand people who grew up a little earlier than me mm-hmm. sometimes they even like I came to US I was watching Seinfeld like non-stop because I was like I need to understand the quotes right. I really do I need to understand where the quotes are coming from so I was like watching Seinfeld every freaking day <laughs> it's a good one to watch though so it's a good one I, I mean I don't complain but <laughs> <laughs> I had to. <laughs> you know, it's it's funny that you mentioned that because a lot of things that, um, again, back in the 80s, because that was the time that uh, we were going through a war in Iran. And so a lot of things were unavailable to us. And you are pretty much separated from the rest of the world. And so you don't get yeah. to see these um, other normal things that happen in other people's lives or other kids your age at that time. And you kind of get to 90s and you know things are kind of getting back to quote unquote normal so yeah. there are a lot of songs from the 80s that i know um but most of them were things that we heard from european countries versus the us so i i did yeah. have to learn a lot about the us pop culture yeah. to me pop culture is yeah. kind of like what is pop culture <laughs> yeah now i knew about the pop culture of the 90s 
Um, yes. I, I, because at that time everybody had uh, these uh, dish networks and we, we watched MTV mm -hmm. nonstop all day long. So yeah, I knew about Beavis and Butthead, for instance. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Most well, useless you, thing. I, I watched them in English. I was watching them every day when <laughs> exactly. I was like, whatever. Or The Simpsons, right? <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, every, some of the things, as you mentioned, in the 80s are sort of um, a, a step removed from, from our childhood. So then 91 happened, and yeah. um, we know that the Soviet Union uh, was basically no more. Um, and then tell me what happened with Ukraine specifically. So after the collapse of Soviet Union, because everything was before so centralized, uh, it was chaos. It, like mm -hmm. I, I can't find another word. Uh, maybe I'm pronouncing it wrong, but the, you know the meaning. No, you did, you did perfectly uh, right. So, yes. Okay. So uh, basically, for several years, uh, just people were trying to figure out how to function, mm -hmm. how to run a country that is like you are the government that it. So. And so we had the first president, he was just like, well, that's the time to steal everything. Because let's tell before, before. So in a couple of years, we were like, oh, wait, so where are all the money? What happens to all of this? Like we were supposed to have, because when Soviet Union collapsed, they kind of divided. Um, mo the majority of things stayed in uh, whatever Russian Federation, mm -hmm. but they did share something. And we were like, okay, so where... Where, where did it all go? Where did it go? So like, was what it, happened to the money? Was this during the time where um, a lot of uh, the things that were run by the government became privatized and a lot yes. of businessmen became very powerful and very rich and they yes, hence became exactly politicians? Ah, gotcha. Okay. Yeah. So, you know, but because lots of things like, oh, but it has to be privatized because like um, we're not controlled by like centralized government anymore. Mm -hmm. And then we were like, okay, so we need to have money, but what kind of money we use? We still have like Russian money, okay. well, Soviet money, but they're not. And then we need to have like, we knew that we have to have agreements, but we didn't even know how it will look. Mm -hmm. Right. So somebody had to make a picture of future money, you know, somebody had to create. So we had like these coupons that we've been cutting out yeah. and using them with like Soviet rubles. And that was like, that was like very chaotic and like, prices went hiked up every month and you didn't know or you didn't earn even anything because mm -hmm. like nobody had money to pay you so you know so they trading, <laughs> trading <laughs> yeah, goods for whatever else you wanted to yeah, whatever yes <laughs> okay very interesting uh and you and i talked a bit about education uh last time we we spoke you were talking about um Basically, starting your education uh, at a normal school, which was funded by uh, the Soviet Union government and everything, yeah, yeah. Uh, the education was free. And then uh, once the collapse happened, uh, that education remained free. And uh, you ended up actually attending a conservatory for oh, yeah. a very yeah. talented musician. So tell, tell everybody that story, because I think that's really fascinating. So, so what Soviet Union did... Like there were good things about Soviet Union, and one of them was education. Right. And uh, like especially if you were um, like I was in a multiracial country, uh, not country, but city specifically. I was like there was a line of settlement for Jewish people, so we had okay. like a huge Jewish population in there. So okay. what it meant that um, 
basically my school, my specialized school for musically gifted children was uh, made by a Jewish, very famous uh, violinist. And it was only happening because they were, um, in general, Jewish people were allowed in music and uh, medicine as profession um, more freely, let's put it this way. Okay. And so... Um, because we had free education for everybody and we had all of this like music schools for everybody until the seventh grade and then after you finish seventh grade if you want to be a musician then your route is going to be music college okay like a community college and then a conservatory okay but uh, there was another option because soviet union was so targeted into raising prodigies mm-hmm. i mean raising i mean you had to be talented you don't get me wrong but the system was so good that if you got to the school, they will raise you to be good. Amazing. Yeah. So, yes. Yeah, so if you got to that school, so I got to that school uh, for, so it was like one of the four, I believe in Ukraine, maybe five, I think four. So it was like a school for uh, musically gifted children. Mm-hmm. And so you had to pass exams. You had to, in my case, play and sing and like repeat what they did, you know, so they check your like hearing and stuff like right. that. And then, uh, so after you get there, you basically are on a route to be a, you know, solo performer or a music theorist at the end. If like, but basically they just like targeting you, like if you got there, you're going to be a soloist. Yeah, and so in your case, was, you want to be a concert pianist, and that's yes, in my, where in my they're case, going to take you. Pianist. Gotcha. Yes. And so that was free because, um, again. It was um, when he created, when Zdarsky created the school, he was saying that, oh, I'm created a school, I'm cre- I've created a school for gifted uh, par- children or for gifted parents, meaning the parents can pay okay. uh, enough to, for tutors to get children into the school. So you're either as a student, you're gifted and you can pass the exam to get in, or if or your parents you have money, can you can buy, buy your way in. in. Gotcha. Yes, All right. Well, sounds fair. <laughs> I mean, somebody somebody paid for it so you know <laughs> somebody's gotta pay for something right yes. <laughs> and so yes so it was very um, selective and the, the, the beginning it was not that good because there were more children of gifted parents you know yeah. but at the end uh, like at some point you understand that music is hard yeah at some point you understand that you have to practice if you want to do because there were like lots of Passing exams, we, we had to do all of the studies by the ninth grade, all mm-hmm. the math, sciences, all of that. All of that was done grade nine. So after that, it's just like music history, mm-hmm. music theory, yep. like, you know, like solfage. Not easy stuff. Not easy stuff, you know? Yeah, no, I'm glad you said that because a lot of people don't have that um, that knowledge of music actually requires a lot of discipline it requires a lot of studying it requires you to just be extremely serious about what you want to do and if you lack that kind of discipline you're not going to succeed well i was lacking discipline but i was gifted enough i think i think your i think your mother made up for the discipline i think so i remember too. you telling me stories about she would not let you not practice so yeah let's Oh, and I was creative. I would like I would see the cheese coming through the window because like my piano was near the window, and I would just like start practicing like rigorously, just like so that when she comes closer to home, I'm like, oh, play. Gotta find out your mom's secret. 
Yeah, there was no secret. I didn't practice. I practiced in a, I, I practiced uh, in a public transportation because um, the school where I went to, it was also boarding school for children mm-hmm. who were uh, from outside of the city. Right. Because like there were four schools like this and mm-hmm. talented children could be found anywhere. Yeah. So those children lived in uh, w- with the boarding. Mm-hmm. But since I was from the city, like we didn't want to board me, so I was taking a bus every day for at least an hour each way. Oh, there you go. So That's that your practice, practice time. Yeah. yeah, I opened the score and I would just sit and stare at it until I kind of memorized it mentally. You memorize it, and and the, the interesting thing that this is I I learned this years later um, was you can just practice on on a board on on your paper with fingers you don't have to have exactly yeah. the keyboard underneath your your tip well, of your I fingers mean, you it would be distance. nice but you know exactly yeah. you practice the distance you, you practice do. the distance between um notes and yep. they, it can happen like anywhere like, exactly you, have it on a table <laughs> get it going now <laughs> <laughs> fabulous okay so um that's great and that education as you mentioned continued after the collapse of the soviet union because they stayed with the system and yeah, so you continued system. on with uh, with your education yeah. and that was not interrupted, which is great. So then at some point, then after you you finished, I believe you were a bachelor's, then uh, you moved to the state. Uh, yeah. How was that transition like and what got you moving out of the um, country, out of Ukraine? I, I got married. <laughs> so it was easy well it was not easy okay so my my husband was already here as an international student in the u.s and so um given where i was from and my age that was there was no way i would be so we were dating only when he would come to ukraine okay but there was no way i would come and visit him mm-hmm. because I was young and pretty and from Ukraine. Like that's a, <laughs> like a red flag. Like you cannot leave the country. Did you need a visa to vid- visit the US at the time? Y- yes. Well, I mean, you still need a visa, but at that time, uh, the the famous um, what's that called? Male brides were like really rising. Oh yeah. The thing where you send a picture and then... You send a picture and then like they kind of... I totally forgot about that. (laughs) Yeah, well, I do remember that because I barely could leave the country, even when I was married. Mm -hmm. And it's still like they've been uh, really interviewing me for an hour. Wow. Just to make sure that I was... It was a legitimate marriage and it wasn't just... It was a legitimate marriage, yes. Gotcha. And so that's why we were like, okay... Let's do, young, let's do it. We're stupid. Let's do it. What else can we do? Yeah. Well, and it was successful. You, you're still together. Yeah. So I have congratulations. Good know? decision there. <laughs> I mean, we kind of knew that it was coming. With it was just a little not. It was very unsettled. But at the same time, I just great. I well, like we got married while I was like last doing. It's a specialist degree. It's a five year degree. Mm-hmm. And so I was like in my last doing my last year, and we were like, okay, so I can graduate and then just come and study in america because like right. if, as a student of a international student uh, as a wife of an international student um you don't even have a name in your visa you have a name of your husband in your visa oh interesting okay and i mean i mean it's still kind of for me it was shocking because like here like mrs john brown is a normal thing for me i was like who the heck is that <laughs> like, what is your name like why do i need to know the name of like you know like Who's the husband, right? Exactly. 
I, I'm still, I'm still, that, that is never old. Like, it, I'm just like, don't you have a real name? So in any case, as a wife or husband, you don't have a real name. You, you have yeah, you just name go by your husband's husband. name. Yes. yes, yeah. And so you can't work, you can't study, mm-hmm. but you can apply. Okay. So that's what I did. I applied nice. to schools because I could do that. I couldn't study, but I could apply. And so I applied. As, um, so basically, I got married. Lived, we lived one year. Like I, I was already able to visit him because I was married. Mm-hmm. So we lived like a couple of months here, a couple of months there, depending on who was at school at that time. Right. And um, after I graduated, I took a week, packed, packed. two suitcases and left. so was uh, leaving Ukraine uh, sort of easy and comfortable did you just hop on the plane and arrived in the US or did you have any difficulties in the process Mm, well it's just like a long flight you know you have to first get to the capital and then from capital you have to get to like Amsterdam I think I flew through Amsterdam and and so so that was hard but in general Mm -hmm. the hardest thing was like like leaving my family because like everybody lives in Ukraine so you know leaving my family was hard but at the same time I was like yeah it's an adventure and you're young so you yeah you adapt. I was like, whatever. yeah I, I was like well it's fine <laughs> and was, the- I mean it was rough first year but in terms of like not having family around but yeah. I didn't think about it when I traveled of course not, because you have you have an adventure waiting for you, and that's what yeah, you're I, thinking I had about. Yeah, I waiting, adventure waiting, like, who cares? Right, exactly. <laughs> Just leave. So then tell me a little bit about um, after the, let's call it the honeymoon period over, <laughs> was over, and um, then you realized, okay, yeah, I, you miss your family a bit more, maybe, and um, you, you did go back and visit pretty frequently, right? Yes, I went to visit um, twice a year. Oh, nice, and- okay. Summer, I actually visited for like a couple of months. Yeah, which is awesome. So it would be, yeah. And then you, you had your uh, family also visit here. Was it easy for them to come and visit? Um, not everybody, only my mom. Right. So my mom, first time she was able to get a visa because I was graduating. Yeah, I remember. And so she was able to come because it's a big deal, you know. Yeah, of course. So they allowed her to come for my graduation. Now, since these um, past several months now it's almost a year uh, yeah um from the the time that uh, russia basically um occupied ukraine for lack of a yeah. Yeah, invaded um yeah. not quite occupied but invaded you're right um well, so you well, haven't... I'm, I'm in partially occupied yes of course yeah but uh, invaded the rest <laughs> exactly so i know that this past year has been extremely difficult for you, and um, you've been very active in um, educating the rest of the community here um, on, on this side of the planet about what's happening in Ukraine and how it's affecting the um, the people in various cities and their day-to-day lives. And you've been doing that by uh, posting pictures, and as they say, pictures say a thousand words, because it's so much more powerful to actually see what's happening there. I mean, I sometimes write a commentary, you know, if if I don't, just to make sure that people understand where the picture came from, because sometimes it's not that obvious. Yeah, definitely. And I understand you haven't been back um, since the, the, the invasion started, and so you haven't seen your family uh, for over a year now, uh, which is unusual for you because you used to go back and visiting and seeing everybody. 
how has this time been for you personally? Um, and I know it's been very difficult, but kind of tell me a little bit more in detail. And also, how has it been for your family back home? Uh, and by home here, I mean Ukraine. We'll talk about yeah. home a little bit more. So it's um, it's a day-to-day -day, like life. Yeah. Uh, so first month uh, when like there was like a little big of big chunk occupied, that was rough because basically you wake up and you check your parents every day if they're still alive. Mm -hmm. I still do that, but now I'm checking mostly. So now I go and check like a Telegram uh, news channel to see if there was any. Um, what's that called? Air. Well, in any case, like sometimes, like they have to go into bomb bomb shelters. Yeah, yeah. So or like hiding places, whatever. They're not bomb shelters everywhere. So I usually check in the morning if that was the case of that day while I was sleeping, mm -hmm. and then after that, if I know that yes or no, after that I ask my mom like how was her day. Yeah. Because uh, and you know people get used to that uh, because they hear. Like it's, it's some days, like especially at the beginning, I, I, I can say you get used to it. It's a bad word, but you kind of uh, get desynthesized at some point. Yeah, absolutely. And it's uh, it's really unfortunate that um, that happens, but that's just the way that we try to, I think, shield ourselves from constantly getting attacked by these emotional uncertainties. And like, you know, if uh, let's say... There was a house, house bombed that I've passed every day, yeah. and it's near my grandma's house. So basically, of course, I'm first thing I'm asking my mom is like, is my grandma alive? Yeah, because she could be there. Like she lives near that house. You know, it's not like, or like my friend lost her home. Like so, she's homeless with three children because she her like they were trying to get some soldiers nearby, and I mean ballistic ballistic missile is pretty you know it's it's a target but even the target they can hit like several houses around the target yeah and so her house was around the target so she has no house and so you know and this is like stories every day and like every day my mom is telling who like oh you know that person yeah he got killed or like that person and so if you do not shield yourself uh you just don't function and yeah exactly and for them um, over there back in Ukraine, it unfortunately becomes your um, quote-unquote normal because that's what you have to deal with every day. It's I, I don't think they just like adapt. I don't think it's normal. Well, of course, it's they not normal to live in a war. <laughs> from, from, from a situation to a situation. Sure. Yeah. So, yes, Russia has been bombing infrastructure. Mm -hmm. So what does it mean? It means that they have no light. So how do they adapt? They go buy power banks to, so that they can have internet and stuff like that. So you adapt as you go. Yeah. And then you realize that, oh, there is no bomb shelter in there. So which is the safest wall? You needed to learn that. And uh, like, I know about safest wall now more than I ever wanted to know. <laughs> exactly. Honestly. There was um, a story that I have from uh, back when I lived in Iran and uh, I, uh, I lived through the war for the first seven, eight years of my life. And um, we lived in this uh, four-story apartment building and we lived on the ground floor and we had some relatives living on the third and fourth floors. And the conception was that 
this one particular hallway inside of our apartment on the ground floor was the safest place to go. So every time uh, the sirens would go off and we knew that uh, there was going to be an air attack or bombing or something coming, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, everybody from third and fourth floor would hop downstairs and they would just stay at our apartment. So there were times that we have 20 people in our apartment and sometimes they're relatives also visit from uh because my family originally comes from the southern uh, part of iran uh, on the southwest which is uh the border with iraq and that's where a lot of the activities were happening in the province of khuzestan and so a lot of our relatives were coming to tehran to stay with friends and family uh when the the most um active and horrible times of the war were happening so there were times that we had a bunch of people downstairs at our house. Um, and so there were a lot of times, and and this is when I say this to people, they kind of look at me funny because some of my best memories, my childhood memories come from sitting in this little hallway. And it was it was a very small hallway. It was literally two doors um, and, and a closet at the end of it. Yeah. So it's just very small space. Um, and at times there would be 20 plus people crammed in there like sardines with lights off uh, because you didn't want to be visible yes, and, exactly. yeah. and we would stay there for hours and hours sometimes with a couple of candles burning and sometimes even no candles and there was a, a few kids there so it was my brother and I and mm-hmm. there were a couple of other kids there and so a lot of times adults um, either consciously or unconsciously try to make the situation a bit more um bad words, which is normal that I used before, but well, normal, you have to yeah, feel some, well, some sense of normalcy, right? Normalcy, yeah. And they would, they would tell funny stories and they would joke. And, um, we, we have a, <laughs> have this kind of saying these days that Iranians go through all of these horrible, horrible, uh, situations year after year. And our sense of humor keeps getting better and better because, there's nothing else to do. You just have to to have a sense of humor to be able to keep going. The same is actually like it was known in my city exactly because of the like Jewish people especially mm-hmm. because you have to laugh at the, the, the horrible situations so that you make yourself sane. Right. Now this year, if there were no memes, <laughs> I would be dead. Exactly. Like memes save my sanity, honestly. I'm I'm just like constantly looking for me, like looking to see what's happening, and you can't just. Yeah. Okay, I, ho- I hope all of you listeners situation. know what I'm talking about because, like, <laughs> it's hard to explain what I'm talking about. No, there's, you know, it, it's it's not that we are degrading the severity of the situation there is no it's just like you can't constantly be sad about it it's it it's it's your reality it eats you alive and you have to find an escape this is the only escape you know i had a um when i was in germany i had a uh a, a terrible um let's call it period of time where um, I was dealing with a lot of things and COVID was happening at the same time mm-hmm. and lost several uh, dear relatives. And I went to see a therapist because I was like, I, I need to just talk to somebody. I didn't have a mm-hmm. support group. I didn't know anybody. I was like, I just want to talk to someone. And um, I was telling her stories about my childhood, about mm-hmm. um, how I, I lost a best friend at age 14 and, lost uh-huh. this person and that person and the list of uh, uh-huh. uh, loved ones being lost was getting 
bigger and bigger. And um, I was dropping jokes in the middle of the conversation and laughing. And she just Mm -hmm. looked at me and she said, how can you laugh about this? And I said, what other choice do I have? Exactly. How else do I cope with this? Yeah. It's not because I'm enjoying the situation. Matter of fact, most of the times when I'm joking and when I'm laughing about things is the time that I'm hurting the most on the inside or the times that I'm most nervous about something. Especially when you're nervous about, yeah, that's like the nervous laugh and nervous jokes is everything, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) It's by no means we're trying to degrade the situation or, you know, just... Uh, say it's not bad it is horrible but that's just you know you have yeah. to live with it on a daily basis and what else to do actually the only therapist that i got along with was a persian woman because <laughs> <laughs> she was like she's been through it a lot <laughs> she was like, oh you went through a lot i can relate totally like okay let's talk through it i can help you <laughs> and i'm like okay <laughs> On the same token, the one that I found finally in Hamburg, because I was searching for one for a long time, was um, another immigrant. Uh She was another another immigrant. She was a Mexican immigrant. And Uh and we hit it off right away because it's, you know, and and it's interesting because um, (laughs) we can talk about therapists all day long. (laughs) (laughs) Sorry, everybody. That's sorry. But what I've learned is that I, I've been through so many of them, but um, I've, I've learned that at this point in my life, I don't think I can find one that that I can openly have a conversation and not be judged or not be just in, in, a, in a situation where they're just kind of looking at you with eyes open and mouth wide open, just like, what? are you even talking about that's me an american therapist i i I found that i cannot like people who were born in america they can understand like general ideas but um when i'm telling stuff about what i went through through these years of chaos when there was like so many uh crime around me i grew up in a very in the city with lots of crime, yeah. like I had drug dealers on every floor of my apartment building, mm. and I didn't live in a horrible neighborhood. Yeah, yeah, neighborhood. It was just like what it was. Yeah, and so it's really like because usually the majority of American therapists that I've seen, they were very like, you know, not necessarily privileged class, but middle class and upper yeah. middle class, and yeah. so they never thought that a person who is like normal seems normal right now could get through i'm like oh yeah half of my like you know friends who i was friends with uh, like in my childhood already died from drug overuse because that's that's what happened yeah that's because again like yes children cope uh well with whatever reality i threw at them but at what price i I don't i don't know if it's coping well i would i wouldn't say well I, I would at least in my situation you just kind of go day by day and we had a um a, a small t- talk you and i about uh, anxiety because you were telling me that you like to have control over a situation right and in this particular case yeah. where your family is back in ukraine and there's a war happening and there's no real control that you can have over the situation other than no. just so the only thing i do i donate money every time i feel like my anxiety is going off the roof i donate money 
I know people who I can always send money if I need to. I have I have to support some people uh, in my family. I I have like lots of I can always go and check which shelters because there are lots of uh, animal shelters. People are dying daily. People need warm clothes. People need so there is always like things that I can donate money to. Yeah, and so that's what I do. That's my coping right now with the anxiety because I cannot control the situation. Yeah, of course. Um, now to kind of maybe switch a little bit to a, a lighter topic. Um, we did talk a lot about some of the culture shocks that uh, you experienced after moving here and um, maybe with the, with your kiddo, um, the things that you see that are kind of like, oh, okay, this is, this is uh, interesting or nice or I wish I had this or wow, this, they're doing this stuff and that's crazy. So tell me a little bit about those uh, moments. So with the child, most of the time I embrace that I know nothing. <laughs> I'm not even shocked. I'm just you like, that's the way how they do. That's it. Like, you learn with her, right? I'm basically, yes, I'm at school right now. So whatever grade she is in, I'm in that grade. Exactly. And I started with K and I was like, I have no clue what you're doing. So let's do it together. Yeah. And then when everybody's just like, oh yeah. And we have like this, like parent conference. I'm like, what? what's that <laughs> are we going to a conference like what are you talking about because like seriously they have no experience friends around me they have younger children than i do so i'm actually educating them yeah. or their children are so grown up that they don't remember that you don't know this stuff so mm -hmm. you know mm -hmm. and so but when i came i was really it, it was interesting to me, like, and we already talked about it, but but still, like, it was really interesting to me that at one point, people do not remove shoes when they go inside the house. Yeah. Yet at another point, they use a hand sanitizer like there is no tomorrow. And I'm like, <laughs> how does that correspond? You're bringing so much germs into your house and you just, like, then you're barefoot or whatever. Like, you have to, like, bring outside. And then, but then... Uh, you use hand sanitizer even sometimes when you don't need to mm -hmm. because you're not planning to eat you're not planning to yeah. touch your face you just like did something like just roll with it just like <laughs> once you need to eat then then you clean your hands you know like yeah <laughs> and the thing that you said about the school is so true i remember my mom um when we first moved here my sister was about five years old and um we lived in california and she started elementary school and um you had to have these earthquake prep bags that you took yeah, to school yeah. with you for yeah. and one of the items there was granola bar and my poor mother was like what is a granola bar and she back then like we didn't have this like wide usage of google so she i yeah. remember she had to go ask her co-workers or whoever to just find out yeah. what is a granola bar and where do you purchase it and is it edible <laughs> is it like <laughs> yeah i remember those days <laughs> just like oh my gosh but still now i mean i i did see my sister go through you know the education system here and so forth but now i feel like my kids are in school and i am mm -hmm. just like you i'm learning everything on a daily basis that the whole parent conference thing at the beginning of, or it was sometime at the beginning of the year my son had a, a long-term substitute teacher and mm -hmm. i emailed the teacher and i said um hey, I have a concern about so-and-so, how do I address it? And she said, oh, we'll talk about it during the conference. And I was like, going up and down the calendar, the school calendar, my calendar I was like, 
where is the conference? What is this conference I have to attend? And I told my husband and I was like, she said, we're going to discuss it during the conference. And he was like, oh, okay. And he just passed. And I was like, what? what do you mean? Oh, okay. What am I missing here? I was like losing my mind. Yes. Because like, like, what conference do I have to attend? Like, what are you talking about? Are the opens collecting together? Like, what are we doing? And he was, is it a, like a school-wide program exactly. thing that I'm missing? And then it took him a while to like figure out why I was panicking. And he was like, oh, it's just a parent-teacher meeting. So, I mean, this kind of shocks, yeah, there are, I thought it shocks him to me. I just, I just go with the ride yeah. because like, you know, it's like in a plane. If you're in a plane, I'm actually very relaxed when, once I get to a plane because I have zero control over situation. Yeah. That's it. Like if we have a crash, we have a crash. I have no control <laughs> over it and I just let go. So that's my attitude towards things that I really do not understand or do not know Yeah, because I'm like, that's the way how they do it i guess that's normal i guess we do it too <laughs> that's like i <laughs> when you and i t- uh, talked about last time we were kind of sorting out what what home means to you and um how it's defined in your life now after being here for 20 years and sort of your ability to adapt to new situations tell me a little bit about that because i i thought that was really um comforting statement a few of them that you made so tell me <laughs> no more about i mean we have that's an expression that we have um at least i learned in my city i don't know so it, it says that home is where your heart is yeah and so for me it's very true because um my home is where my family is and uh where i feel loved and so my home is like yes my definitely i feel like i'm my home now is in america so even let's say the like i don't know something happened to my immediate family right now like i don't know i got divorced God forbid, but whatever <laughs> no no, like, no i'm not going all of a sudden to go back to ukraine yeah. because um i already i you know i grew up here as an adult mm-hmm. yeah and so what's like what happened to with both of me and my husband because we came here as students and we kind of almost immediately got married graduate students but still so we kind of grew up together we got used to a new country together so we were like discussing the process in the middle and so my home is where where i feel so if let's say we move to another country that will be my home because i move with my family so my my home is like my family basically the people people around me is my home makes sense and so it's not necessarily a physical location. So you wouldn't say whether Ukraine is your home or the U.S. is home or where, where home is no, where your community no. is. Yeah, so I can say, first of all, like even when we've been, because we went uh, up the West Coast and down the West Coast, but like even the East Coast for me, wouldn't I wouldn't say that this is my home. Like unless we moved together with my family and I found a new support system. And so... Um, I would say that I get uh, used, like location only matters if I had a good memory there. Yeah, yeah. So I don't necessarily say that, oh, I miss Ukraine. How, I, I haven't missed that. I haven't been to, to that many cities in there, to be honest. So I can say, like, I miss that city 
Although I can say that I miss London. Okay. <laughs> there is one exception. Okay. But other than that, I don't miss cities. I'm, um, I'm assuming you had some good memories in London and that's why. <laughs> I, that's why. Yes. I, I really, I really enjoy that city because it, it provides so much in, in such a short time. You can do so much and it's really enjoyable to me. But in general, again, you're right because I had good memories there. I don't have nostalgia for places. I have nostalgia for places where I had good time with, yeah. with people. With, with people. people, yeah, yeah, yes. exactly. Um, it's it's <laughs> I I like how you put it. It's sort of like a collection of your memories and experiences and what makes you feel like home. Yeah. Yeah, that's awesome. I, that's that's basically what's 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 it. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So, and then talking about a little bit further than that, um, obviously, one of the other points of this whole conversation is identity. So, how would you identify yourself now that you've been away for many years and you've had your basically adult life here in the states? Yeah. So I. I, as I write on my website, I'm an Ukrainian American, and mm -hmm. I'm proud of it. Yeah. <laughs> so they're inseparable, basically. So they're inseparable. Yeah. They are like even my daughter feels that she's a Ukrainian American, even though she was already born here. That's amazing. But she feels so proud for our nation, you know, yeah. that she she feels like she belongs, and so um, there are certain parts of my. Um, upbringing that are very much what when I think about being Ukrainian means you know like we are very mild until you touch us mm -hmm. but you better don't like we have an expression you better don't spit on my borscht because I'm going to kill you for that <laughs> so you like you, of course borscht has to be <laughs> I, I'm all nice you're all welcome until You do that thing. And don't cross me. Don't cross me because then all of a sudden, and you know, it's very shocking for many people because I can be very aggressive and I, people don't realize it until I become aggressive because for them, I'm so like mild and like smiley <laughs> and nice. And then they do something that I cannot stand. Yeah. And then the claws come it. out. And, <laughs> and then the, the, the switch is there. And they are in big trouble. And I think that's true for everybody. You know, you we all have boundaries. And yeah, no, I, I mean, in, in terms of me, uh, because um, I grew up with very strong females. Yeah. So and it's it's a norm in like all of my friends had very strong female yeah. mothers and sisters, and so I just and I think in that in that yeah. you know putting into perspective of where what Ukraine has been through. Um, in its history, you oh, have so to be, yeah, because um, it's been through so many wars and unrest. Many times the the males, even some of the women had to go to war. And so a lot of the times the responsibility of uh, the, the family and keeping the territory safe fall Uh, falls on the women and fell on the women exactly. at that time too and it's very similar to Iranian women as well um, that's why you see this huge movement coming from the Iranian women because, yes, because we're you, nice we serve tea yeah we serve <laughs> you nice tea 
But oh, if you cross us, <laughs> <laughs> yes, better be ready. <laughs> right. So, so that's something that in America sometimes gets very useful to me because here people are very pa- good with passive and being passive aggressive. Mm-hmm. But people really freak out about being aggressive, being direct. Things. Yeah. Direct, and yeah. I cannot do passive aggressive. I mean, I learned obviously, of course, I, I adapted. <laughs> but I'm like, if you have something, just tell me, just let's say it, just yeah. like, get over it and just fix it. Yeah, I'm not saying that you have to yell at me or anything, but just like sometimes being direct is so much better. Yeah, it solves things and, a lot faster, and that's when I'm the most foreign. That's when I feel like I'm the most foreign for many Americans. And they either like me or they dislike me for that. <laughs> so, but, uh, but I'm like, well, just let's just talk about it. Just get through it and let's just fix it. Because passive aggression can go forever. It can go for weeks without actually having any result. And it just everybody feels like... And it, everything keeps yes. getting worse too. And it just you know piles on it if you're, if you're not resolving it. And... Uh, one of my guests uh, said something that was amazing. She said, if we just have conversations, um, most of the problems that we're dealing with are no longer there because you're just talking yeah. and you're just talking through whatever difficulties you're having or um, uh, disagreements that you have. Yeah, what I do prefer really in America that uh, they're much more afraid to tell lies. Yeah. They're much more honest. And I'm like, oh, thank you. I appreciate it. I, I don't, it's like, I have, like, I, it's easier to see when people are lying to you because as a general rule, you know that people probably are telling you either partial truth or the whole truth. Right, exactly. And which is like, which is like, that's why when I see a lie, I almost like immediately, it just tracks me now because I'm like, ooh. I totally had forgotten about this, but you're right. Because it's, um, I think for a lot of, good reasons too in ukraine as well as in iran lying is preferred when it when it comes to a lot of things because you many times you have to lie to protect your your life life in order to protect yourself yeah and i think in addition to that this sort of um feeling of one thing that i really like about the american culture is that it's it's a curious culture you they want to know uh about various things and i mean we live in a a melting pot so to have everybody from everywhere so there's this notion of wanting to learn about you wanting to um come and say hi to you like i never had anybody i lived in tehran it's a huge city i never ever walked on the street and we lived in the same neighborhood for 13 years so the whole pretty much neighborhood mm-hmm. knew me um mm-hmm. but i would never go outside and walk on the sidewalk and have somebody like a neighbor would just pass me by and say hello and here people do and they say hi how are you and you're like oh okay who are you <laughs> who are you <laughs> oh okay so the biggest well that the biggest culture shock ever that happened to me was when i went to this grocery store with my husband mm-hmm. and we were at the at the cashier and and he was like hi how are you and that put me you're like why are you was, why are you talking like, to this person no i was like why do you care <laughs> Because in Ukraine, if you ask a person how the person is, you genuinely care and you're prepared to listen for the next 15 minutes. <laughs> right. so but here only, it's like, fine, and you move on. Time. Right. Exactly. I'm like, and then I left and I was to my husband, like, why did he ask, how am I? Yeah. And he's like, well, because it's polite. I'm like, how is that polite? What am I supposed to just answer? <laughs> 
it out. That, black? <laughs> that just puts me out like completely. <laughs> and sort of a reverse situation I had this was uh, uh, we lived with my aunt for um, for about eight or nine months when we first moved mm-hmm. to the States. And um, she had been living in the U.S. for many years prior mm-hmm. to that, for decades. And um, her daughter, who, who would call her sort of on a daily and mm-hmm. um, she was born and raised here and everything. And so she would pick up the phone and the conversation would start with, hey, what's up? And to me, that was the weirdest thing. This is like, why didn't she say, hello, how are you? Which same as you're carrying, you're, you're, exactly, you're ready, yeah. you're prepared to wait for 20 minutes while the other person is telling you how they are, how they are and what yes. happened in their, their family and their lives for the past like century. And then you actually get to the point <laughs> of the call. <laughs> like, here was just like, hey, what's up? And then the conversation would pretty much end after one minute. It's like, to me, it was like, oh my God, that's that's so rude. Why why won't you ask about this person? <laughs> uh, I, I mean, for now, I just like, I learned how to deal with the small talks. I still dislike them. Mm-hmm. I still think they're fake, but I'm like, well, that's polite. And I'm a polite person, yeah. so I'll do it. That's just what you but do. If you want me to do it, that's like, how do you do? How do you do? Like, like, the weather's nice today. Oh, yeah. Like, so that's it. Like, basically. <laughs> awesome. Well, thank you so much for sharing all of your stories. It was uh, just a real pleasure to listen to it all. And uh um, I wish we had more time to just talk another two hours about it. <laughs> and then I'll miss my work and then I wouldn't donate money to Ukraine. So that's not going to happen. Exactly. <laughs> we both have to get back to work. Exactly. <laughs> well, thanks again. And uh, yeah, have a great rest of the day. Talk Thank to you. you later. Thank you. Talk to you later. Thank you so much for listening. And please don't forget to subscribe. Please join me next time for other amazing stories and experiences of immigrants and expats. Until then, I wish you well.